Well, I'm sure many of us know who the first martyr of the New Testament church was, but if you don't, it was Stephen. And I want us to listen to his final words as he died before his persecutors. As stones were being hurled at Stephen, Luke tells us that he fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, which is the way the New Testament writers talk about saints having died. They fell asleep. Now I wonder, would these words come out of your mouth? If you were in Stephen's place having been killed, would you pray to your father who's in heaven and ask him that he would not hold the sin against your persecutors? Or let's move even past the hypothetical question. Let's come to situations that every single one of us have faced perhaps even today. When you're cut off in traffic, are you inclined to pray for the offender? Or when you are falsely accused, do you forgive your accuser? Or how about even a far more painful experience? When the person who you love betrays you, what is your knee-jerk reflex? Well, I bet many of us would say we wouldn't sound like Stephen. I know I certainly wouldn't. And yet what our scripture that we have before us this morning calls us to is a, a better way. Not repaying evil for evil, but instead forgiving those who have offended us. Paul, in this text before us, is right in the middle of his, his discourse on the Christian life, and it's put in these terms that are quite familiar. Uh, it, it's, it's terms of putting off and putting on, putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes. My son is the age where he is out, always outgrowing his pajamas, and his old clothes that once fit so well now look more like high waters and crop tops. And so the only thing we can do about this is to take off the old clothes and put it away and put on the new pajamas that his grandma gets him. And something similar is happening for the Christian as well. This is how Paul is describing the Christian life. We are to put off our old clothes, the clothes of immorality, the clothes of anger, and the clothes like these things. Paul tells us to put off the old self, and furthermore, he tells us that we are to put on what we have now in Christ, this new set of clothes that we have access to if we belong to him. Listen to Colossians 3.12. Tate preached on this last week. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and here's the outfit that we put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then our text this morning follows up right after this. After we have put these things on, he shows us what the effect is as, as we have put on these Christ-like virtues. Verse 13 continues, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And so verse 12 shows us the new nature that God's people have when they are arrayed with this new clothes. And now this morning's text continues by showing us the full effect of those clothes when they are worn. And there's nothing subjective about these clothes that are put on. It's something that you will see. And it's shown in the way that we bear with one another. And in the way that we forgive one another. 
And furthermore, there is nothing subjective about this bearing and forgiving, for we're giving an example to whom we are to follow. It's a small little word in verse 13, and it's easy to overlook, but I find that the small words are often the most important words. Look again at Colossians 3.13. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then here's the important word, as. As the Lord has forgiven you, there's our example. So you also must forgive. And so if we're to rightly forgive one another, if we're to do this the way Paul is calling us to do so, then we must first reflect upon the perfect model of forgiveness. And so let's do that this morning. Let's remember how Christ forgave us. And my sermon this morning is really simple. It has two parts. First, we're going to remember and then we're going to imitate him. So let's remember how Christ forgave us. First, let us, let us remember Christ. He is inclined to forgive. We would do well to recall God's revelation of himself to Moses at Sinai when he declared his name to Moses. But before we do that, let me give a little bit of context as to where this falls. God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 34. In that famous passage that I'm sure most of us are familiar with, but just two chapters earlier, in Exodus 32, Israel committed a great sin. They had made the golden calf, they had carved this image, and they had worshipped this image as if that image were God. And even just before that, in Exodus 20, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And listen to the commandment that he had given regarding idolatry. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And this is the reason why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, in Exodus 32, who did Israel fall into? Were they the people who kept the commandments? Or were they the idolaters to whom God would pay his, his wrath upon them for their iniquity? If I were going to guess it, without having gone into Exodus 34, I would say they're, they're the ones deserving of wrath. They're the idolaters. They, they did what God said they were not to do. They did not love him. They did not keep his commandments. And yet, what's so surprising about Exodus 34 is God tells us more about his nature. Listen to Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the familiar phrase from Exodus 20, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We'll come more to verse 7 in just a little bit. But for now, I want us to notice that God's mercy and his grace inclines him to forgive sins. In 2 Chronicles 7, it's recorded this way. If my people 
who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. This is the disposition of our God, that he forgives when we repent. And so in 2 Peter, he picks up the theme all the same. Peter said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And why is he slow to anger? Why is it that he's inclined to forgive sinners? Isaiah tells us more. Isaiah 43 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And why does he do this? For my own sake. See how God's glory is directly attached to his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And this is why John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does he forgive sinners when they confess their sins? Because he is faithful to do so. Because his very nature requires it and he does not change. He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, he forgives repentant sinners because he is merciful and gracious and because he is faithful and just. He would be unjust if he were to not forgive those who go to him and plead for forgiveness on the basis of his mercy. So on the topic of God's justice, let's go back to Exodus 34 again. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. That phrase it's interesting. He will by no means clear the guilty. In one sense, he's just said that he will forgive sins and now the same, in the same sentence, in the same revelation of himself, he says, I'm not going to clear the guilty. Not what he does. So then is he going back on his word? Does it mean that he, he won't clear our sins? No, not at all. He would be contradicting himself. What he means by this is that God, he does not turn a blind eye towards sin. Yes, he is merciful and gracious, but as we've already stated, he is also just. And since he is just, he will not and he cannot overlook sin that has not been paid for. You see, sin always has a cost. Leviticus 5.17 says, If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And so if you recognize your guilt this morning, understand you should also see with that guilt comes a payment, a price for iniquity that must be paid. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the means by which that guilt is to be paid is through the blood of a lamb or another animal that is to be sacrificed on the sinner's behalf. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So understand, sin must be dealt with by blood. And sin will either be dealt with by the blood of the sinner 
or sin will be dealt with by the blood of a substitute. And so in Christ, we have that substitute who took our place, who bore our sins. Oh, the cost was extreme for our sins. It was not cheap. He poured out his life for us so that we would receive this forgiveness. John 1.29, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ, he was that blameless, spotless Lamb who was slain on our behalf for the sins of the world, for all who would believe in him. And so it is, Christ, he is the final sacrifice. His blood was shed in our place. The price for sin has been paid. In Ephesians, Paul writes, in Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we should see our sin has a price. And for those who believe in Christ, the price has been paid in full because of Christ's death on the cross. And so we stand forgiven of all sins, all the sins from the past, even the sins of the present, and even the the sins of the future. Christ has atoned for them all. And so let us next now recall who then God's people are and also who his people aren't. First, who are God's people? God's people, every single one of them, is a sinner. Even his people of faith, who demonstrate great faith in stories of old, are so often faithless. One such person was King David. King David had incredible faith before Goliath, and yet this quintessential king was an adulterer with Bathsheba, and a murderer when he killed her husband, Uriah. And so, while being far from walking in the way of the Lord, he still belonged to God. Why? Because he was a man of faith and repentance. After his sin, Psalm 1 records, Psalm 51, excuse me, his repentant plea to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Lord certainly did just that according to his request. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And we could go on and on. It's not just David. The apostle Peter himself, the one who penned scripture in the New Testament, did not just deny Jesus once or twice, but three times. In our economy, that's three strikes. You're out, you're done. But in Christ's economy, Jesus, he responded to his threefold sin with a threefold restoration found in John 21. You see, God's people are sinners, but they're sinners who repent. And they're sinners to whom God lavishes forgiveness and mercy and grace upon So God, he he saves his people. But let's also know who God's people are not. It's not those who are sinners who are excluded from the family of God, but rather it's the self-righteous. 
It's the Pharisees and the scribes who looked at their works and assumed that because they were children of Abraham, they therefore must belong to God. Because they kept the law, they must therefore belong to God. And yet Luke 18 tells us of the self-righteous Pharisee compared to that of the lowly tax collector. The Pharisee who beat his breast in pride saying, thank you God that I am not like this tax collector. Notice his pride and his self-righteous works that he claimed to make him worthy to look up to heaven. And then next to him though, that repentant tax collector who, who went down prostrate before the Lord and asked for mercy. And so which of the two belonged to God? It wasn't the righteous, the self-righteous Pharisee who looked at himself and his works, but instead it was the, it was the humble and penitent tax collector. Again, we see a similar comparison between this sinner, the, the nature of the people who do not deserve to draw near to God, or so we would think, compared to the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. John 8 records the, the account of this, this adulteress, this woman who was, who was not faithful to God's law, but she was brought by these Pharisees and scribes to test Jesus. Listen to the account in John 8, picking up in verse 5. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. This is the Pharisees who brought the woman saying this. So what do you say? Asking Jesus this question. They said this to death, test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, from now on, sin no more. We must understand this. Christ is a friend of sinners. And his forgiveness towards sinners was most vividly displayed when he died there on the cross and bore our sins. There on the cross, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one at his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen's words that we opened with this morning echo Christ's words here on the cross. And the reason for it is because Stephen was a recipient of Christ's forgiveness. We could spend the rest of our lives meditating on this grace and, and speaking of the riches of his forgiveness that he has given us because of, for our sins. But let us settle with one last point this morning on the forgiveness that God has given us. Let us remember finally the permanence of Christ's forgiveness. When Christ forgives us, what does he do with our sins? Does he keep them stored in a book? Do we have a limit to the number of chances we have before we have exhausted his, his mercy and grace? 
on that last day, will the Christian who has repented of his sins be accountable for what he has done? This might be how we treat one another. And this might even be how we conceive of God in our minds. But more important than what we think of God, we must listen to what God says of himself. And so what does the Bible say? What does God teach us about what he does with forgiven sins? Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, it's easy for us to not really understand the scope of how far that is because we, we look at our, our maps and our phones and we see, well, okay, it must be this many miles so there is a limit to it, we might think, but understand how this would have fallen on the ears of its original readers who never found the end of either the east or the west. This is a distance that they could not possibly have known. And so it is, this is how far it is that God removes the transgressions of, of his people when he forgives them. The removal of our sin is beyond what we could possibly imagine. Micah 7 tells us something very similar. I love the image that he paints. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I recount a time when I was young. I was with my, my dad, and we were playing in the creek. And uh, my dad lost his cell phone there. And I don't recall whether he ever found it, but I do remember looking long and hard for it. But there, in just a little battling creek, his cell phone was washed away. Couldn't be found, as far as I can remember. And yet far better here in this image, he says that our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. Now I can tell you, we looked for that, that cell phone there in the creek, but, but if my dad would have lost his cell phone in the middle of the ocean, it may as well have never existed. So it is a forgiven sin. When God forgets our sin, it is gone. This is the way Christ has forgiven us. He is inclined to forgive, eager to forgive. Not only that, but he pays the price so that he can forgive. He forgives the worst of sins and the worst of sinners. And he forgives us completely. So now having remembered the forgiveness that we have in Christ, let us now consider our text again. Colossians 3.13. He calls us to, be, to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So Paul, he's calling us to something further than simply remembering Christ's forgiveness. But now he calls us to forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven us. And so let us imitate Christ's forgiveness this morning. And not just this morning, but throughout the week. And not just throughout the week, but in all of our life, let us imitate Christ in the way that we forgive one another. If we have put on the Christ-like virtues that Tate preached on from verse 12, 
then it is only fitting that the effect would be that we would look like Christ. Verse 10 tells us that when we put on the new self, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so perhaps one of the clearest ways that we can demonstrate Christ before a world that does not forgive is for us to forgive one another. There is no doubt that we all need to forgive someone this morning. There are all kinds of relationships that have been broken by sin. Perhaps it's the relationship that's broken in marriage. Perhaps it's a relationship broken between you and your siblings. Or a parent's sin towards their kids that require the kids to forgive their parents. Or the kids' sin towards their parents that require the parents to forgive their kids. Broken relationships at work. Broken relationships in school. Even broken relationships here in the church. Maybe even broken relationships with those who have already left the church. There isn't a single person here who is unscathed by the sins of another. And so this means that each of us have the opportunity to be salt and light in the way that we forgive those who have sinned against us. So let's consider again what our text calls us to do. We are to forgive in the way that Christ has forgiven us. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So let us consider again how Christ has forgiven us, but this time, let us see if we forgive the way he forgives. Consider yet again the way that Christ has forgiven us and the way that he is inclined to forgive. He doesn't restrain it. He doesn't keep it back. He's not slow to forgive. But it is his, his response towards repentance that he would immediately forgive us. And so is it your response when someone asks for forgiveness? Or even if they don't, is it your response to be inclined to forgive their sins? Or instead do you hold a grudge? Because their sin is too great. If so, then you should recount how Christ forgave you. Remember too, Christ, he's not only willing to forgive, but he did so even at the cost of his own life. So too, we, we ought to be willing to forgive each other even when the cost of forgiveness is so great. Has someone's sin cost you dearly? Well, if so, then recount how great your sin was and how great the cost was that Christ paid there on the cross. Again, let's recount that Christ, he forgave our greatest sins, the worst of sins. So too, we ought to forgive even our enemies and their greatest offenses. Christ even longed to forgive sinners who had no repentance in their mouth or in their heart yet. There, dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder, do we forgive even those who have yet to repent, to come to us, to be reconciled to us, to admit their sins? And just as Christ doesn't keep a record of our wrongs, so too we ought not keep a record of the wrongs that are against us. 
If you keep a record of wrongs, then you would do well this morning to recount how Christ has forgiven you, how your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west, how your sins have been cast into the bottom of the sea. Now, if you're thinking this morning that, well, preacher, you just don't know how they offended me. You just don't know what my husband is like at home. If you knew him, you would know it's impossible. Or perhaps you think, if you only knew how greatly my wife has wounded me, you would be, you would be nursing your wounds too. Or if you think maybe, well, if they were in my position, they wouldn't be, forgive, they wouldn't be able to forgive them either. If you're thinking this way, then listen to the words of Jesus as he had this exchange with the apostle Peter. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. That number seven is significant. It's the number of completion. Just as God completed the day of, uh, of his creation on the seventh day, so the number seven throughout the Bible has this, this picture of fullness. Must I fully forgive him? That's what Peter's asking. And Jesus, he replies, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That is how often, how much we are to, to forgive those who sin against us. I don't, I don't know how you would keep track of 77 sins. You would have to keep a ledger, but all the same, 77 is far more than one could ever keep track of in their mind. And to make his point clearer, Jesus, he then, he then tells this parable. In verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. But when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now the ESV study Bible proves to be helpful because we don't know what a talent is. That's kind of a, um, a currency of money that we would be unfamiliar with. But according to the ESV study Bible, it says this 10,000 talents amounts to $6 billion dollars. This is a number that is beyond fathomable in my own mind. And it is beyond what any man would ever be able to repay. And so the parable continues. In verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. He's saying, I'll, I'll repay it if you just be patient with me. Now, there's no way he would be able to repay it. No way he was going to be able to come up with all that money. And yet, what a wonderful picture we have of what Christ has done for us. Though our sins against God were infinitely great, and though we could never have been able to pay them off, all we could do was cast ourselves at the feet of our master and implore that he would have patience and be merciful to us. And though our sin was great, Christ's mercy is greater still. And this would be a good end to the parable. But it's not the end of the parable. It continues. But when the same servant, the one who was forgiven all that money, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, 
pay what you owe. Now, again, for context, how much money would this have been? In our modern equivalent, the ESV study Bible says it would have been somewhere around $12,000. Now, I don't know about you, but $12,000 is a lot of money to me. One that I wouldn't easily let go of. And yet, in comparison to the the billions, the $6 billion that he had just been forgiven of, that 12000 is not even worth keeping track of. It's like pennies. I don't keep track of pennies. And so it is. Though it was a great debt, it was nothing in comparison to what he had already been forgiven. And yet here, this servant, he didn't forgive. He was keeping a record of it. He, he seized his fellow servant and began to choke him until he would give him what he owed. And so the parable then continues. His fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The point of this is being here, this is absurd what's going on. These fellow servants, they can't believe it. He had just been forgiven all this money, and yet he won't even forgive his his fellow servant. And so the the fellow servant goes to the master and tells him what happened. Brings to mind our text this morning as well. Consider the absurdity of what happens when we do not forgive our own fellow man. It is no less absurd than what is going on here in this parable. Our text calls us to forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now, again, our our forgiveness is being compared to that of Christ's forgiveness, but really, how can we possibly even compare the two? Let me highlight just two key differences between the way Christ has forgiven us to that which we forgive one another. First, and most obvious, as the parable makes abundantly clear, the sin that we have to forgive is far less against one another than the sin that Christ forgave us. That $6 billion compared to the 12000 shouldn't even be worth comparing. So the fact that Paul is comparing this is, is mind-boggling in and of itself. But furthermore, our text calls us not just, just to forgive the one, as if it were a one-way street, but we're to forgive one another. Understand, when Christ forgave us, there was no forgiving him. We had no offense against him. He was sinless and perfect. And yet we, a fellow sinner, would go to another sinner and say, you don't deserve my forgiveness? Once again, it's unthinkable. And yet it's unfortunate that here in the kingdom of men, we do not forgive, but instead we echo that of of Lamech. Genesis 4, he said this, Lamech's words, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Isn't that how we treat one another? My mom always would say, never get even, always get ahead. That is not the motto of Christ. This is not how Christ's kingdom works. But instead, Jesus says, no, I don't say seven times must you forgive, but 77 times. An unforgiving heart in God's kingdom is unreasonable. But moreover, an unforgiving heart is dangerous. 
So let us consider finally the danger of not forgiving. The parable continues again, picking up. The master summoned the servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so the parable ends. And then Jesus applies it to you and me all the same. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There is great danger if we would harbor the sins of another, keeping a record of wrong, expecting that on that final day we'll go to him and be forgiven. When our Lord taught us to pray, he told us to pray like this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I wonder if we can pray this with integrity. Have we forgiven our debtors and are we able to then say to God, just as I have forgiven them, would you also forgive me? Again, notice that small little comparison word, that word as shows up once again. While we are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, we also pray that Christ would continue to forgive us of our sins as we continue to forgive those who have sinned against us. And then at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus adds a, a comment about this. In verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are terrifying words. Terrifying to the one who is not forgiving their brother, not forgiving their enemy, not forgiving those who have sinned against them. Though it's worth clarifying, what's happening here is not the kind of forgiving that earns forgiveness. That would be a work that we can earn. And the gospel says completely opposite. We are not saved by works, but by grace alone. So rather, what we see happening here is the forgiveness of our enemies owing to this, that we have already received mercy and grace. We have been forgiven an infinite debt. And out of an overflow of what has been forgiven, we cannot help but forgive those who have sinned against us. So this morning, I wonder, would we be able to say with Stephen, Lord, forgive them? If you have an unforgiving heart, it's owing of one of two things. If you are a Christian who is unforgiving, it is owing to the fact that you are not drawing from the power of his spirit who is at work in his people, causing you to love. And love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love bears all things. And so if you are a Christian who is unable to forgive, this is the call this morning. Repent of your own sins and draw near to Christ again and receive his mercy anew. And as you do that, the effect will be this. You will be strengthened by his grace, by his spirit to forgive others 
just as you have been forgiven. But if you have an unforgiving heart this morning, there's another possibility. And that is that you have never experienced the mercy of God that inclines him to forgive those who repent. And so if that's you this morning, the remedy is the same as that of that who is a Christian already, who, is, who isn't keeping in step with the Spirit, who isn't abiding with Christ. If you are an unbeliever who has never received the mercy and grace of God, then I invite you all the same to believe and repent of your sins so that you might experience His mercy and grace. Just as we have heard this morning, His, his forgiveness is is given freely. He's inclined to do so. Listen now to the open arms of the Father for those who come near to him. As it's put so wonderfully in the parable of the prodigal son. See what happens when God's children come to their senses and return to their father. The prodigal son, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now understand, this is the plan of the son when he comes to his senses. When he realizes his sin against his father and realizes that it would be better for him to be a hired hand in his father's home. This is just his plan that he has up in his mind. But listen to what happens next in verse 20. And the prodigal son, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What repentance has come out of his mouth yet? Not a word. The father only had to see his son there on the horizon before the father would get up and run to his son and embrace him and kiss him. And so too, your heavenly father will do the same. Before your words even come from your mouth, if your heart would simply feel sorrow for sin, know this, God is ready to receive you. And more than that, not just as a servant, but as a son. Luke 15 continues, and the son said to him, here's, here's him laying out his plan that he had already made. Here, here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the way our Heavenly Father forgives. He is inclined to forgive. And the Father is so inclined to it that he runs to his Son before a word even comes from the Son's mouth of repentance. And so this morning, let us draw near to God. Let us receive his mercy and let his mercy and forgiveness have its full effect on us so that we would also forgive one another just as we have been forgiven. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you that you are merciful and gracious, that you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that you forgive our sins. We thank you that you have paid the price for our sins. And we thank you that our sins are gone because of Christ. Lord, may you apply your forgiveness to our hearts this morning in such a way that we would look more and more like Christ. Give us your spirit so that we might have the power to forgive. And Lord, would you complete this work in us to the praise of your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.